Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. What's up, guys? Welcome to the 49th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today, we're talking all about agents, when and how to get them, and if they're actually the key to your success. Spoiler alert, they're not, but they're still pretty handy. So we'll talk all about the ins and outs of what an agent does and how they can help you. And managers, too. And we'll also talk about the challenges and differences between being a writer-director and a pure director. Cool. Well, I can't wait to uh, find out how to get an awesome agent from you. But before we get into that, I was kind of curious about what you've been working on lately. Ooh, you know, it's so funny. I think uh, last episode we talked about how getting meetings pushed isn't that big of a deal. And mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, just <laughs> now it is just talking about it out loud. That's a real jinx. Putting it on your podcast. That's like a mega jinx, man. So I've been fortunately th- th- things have been a little bit more active than radio silence. But I've been going back and forth with people on the perspective shows that I'm working on. And things have been going really well, but also very slowly. So I can't wait to give listeners an update. But I think it is kind of um, worthwhile for people to understand how friggin' slow these things are and how long it takes to to make something happen. So I don't yeah, I don't I even know yes or no, thing, you know, which is funny. Right. I think the interesting thing is the juxtaposition between how slow things actually go and how fast people tell you you need to move you know (laughs) yeah Um, like when i was you know involved in i'm attached to this show at new form digital this like action series and when we were they hired me we had to do the whole pitch in three days and then we pitched the people we pitched to were like we love it like can you start working on it next week and can we have all you know 10 episodes done in three months and we're like uh that is gonna be really hard anyway that was three months ago when we pitched it and we still have not figured out the deal. <laughs> so it's like, on one hand, people will tell you to do things crazy fast. And on the other hand, you'll just be waiting forever. Yeah, there's the thing of like lawyers kind of going at their own speed. And especially, you know, they all have their own priorities in terms of how important a deal is and how quickly you have to shuttle something through. And there's what's called uh, working in good faith, which means that like, oh, my deal hasn't really been signed yet. But because I know 
the timeline that we're all working on, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of start writing or, you know, prepping or whatever it is. And it's so funny. I feel like there's always that question of like, should I just start working on this or, or not? And I don't know what the ultimate best advice is. I think a lot of people will tell you not to start working until you have a contract. But also sometimes if you start working and get, you know, if you're waiting for that contract, it could take a month, a year. Like it's crazy how long these things can take sometimes depending on how intricate the deal points can be. And like you could be making twice as many things if you're just sitting around on, you know, sitting on your hands waiting for some lawyers to kind of hash out your credit or whatever it is that they're worried about or like, you know, rights in Mongolia. Right. Or like the the thing I always see the lawyers getting stuck on is how much ownership you as the director have of the series if it moves on beyond the Mm -hmm. stuff you directed. Yeah. Like, are you attached to the next season? Are you attached uh, in perpetuity to the other incarnations of the show? All that stuff. Blah, blah, blah. But, it's all stuff you have to take care of because you don't want to miss out if things go as well as you want them to. Yeah. Well, I actually think it's a good mini topic. Like, do you ever take jobs before and start working before you know how much you're going to get paid? I always know the ballpark. And sometimes I will say yes before I know how much I'll get paid. But I won't be doing actual work. Mm. I'm I'm in that situation all the time because like we just said, you know, some a lot of people ask you to move really fast when things are actually on. And they'll be like, hey, we want you to direct this. We want this. Maybe you can rewrite the script a little bit. Maybe we have a scout tomorrow and we're going to do casting the day after. And I'm like, well, OK, what's the rate? And they are like, well, uh, we're not sure yet, but, you know, we'll we'll get back to you on that. But we really do you think you can do the scout tomorrow. And you're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess. You know, you want to be super nice and you want it not to be about the money. But ultimately, there's I've had a couple times. I actually just had something that happened to me next week. If you're okay with us moving on to my catch up. No. Or (laughs) what have you been working on lately? (laughs) Well, so last week related to this same topic, I got an email from someone that got my name to do some visual effects on some video or some series or something. And we were emailing back and forth and he's like, you know, we're kind of on a time crunch. Let's talk about this. And he sent me video samples and we looked at them and we emailed back and forth about how difficult it was. And finally, like I managed to get him on the phone. It was like four or five days after we started talking. And he was like, "Okay, And so, you know, how much is this going to cost? And I told him what my rate was. And he like literally said, "Okay, we can't do that. Thank you for talking. Bye. (laughs) Because I think my rate was like or kind of the amount of money. I was asking for was like so out of the ballpark. I don't think it was like Mm. twice as much as what he was thinking. I think it was like 10 times as much, which happens in visual effects all the time because people think it's like so easy. Like, oh, it's just a green screen window. Like, what's the big deal? You just like key out the green screen and put in some sky out there. And it's like, well, there's people walking in front of it that's not lit evenly. There's shadows. The camera's moving all over the place. It's blurry. And the shot is four minutes long, dude. can take me like a week to do that shot. So anyway, I find myself in that situation a lot. And kind of my tip to newer directors and, you know, and any work that you're doing in the industry, creative work, is don't ever be afraid to just say, hey, by the way, what's the rate? You know, yeah, because it's totally. not it's not inappropriate at all. It's actually kind of inappropriate to ask someone to start working before you've like officially hired them. Though it's kind of something that is just par for the course for what we do. Yeah, it's such a tricky balance because you do want to be a nice guy, quote unquote. But yeah, I think your point of like, 
just clarifying the terms of the deal before you really get into the thick of it. Because they also want to know, you know, if you're Steven Spielberg rates, then they can't afford you and they need to find someone else and they're wasting their time, you know, prepping with you. Yeah. So, and you can be nice about it. I always say like, you know, I really appreciate this opportunity. I'm really excited about this job, but there's like a minimum amount of money that I need to make to work on it because otherwise I'm like, Spending more than that on like babysitters, you know? Yeah. I, um, I, I think also freelancers understand, you know, that you kind of have to have your own personal limit for how low you'll go, depending on how good the project is. Right. But so many times the people hiring us are not freelancers. Uh, I guess so they don't true. even, it's not even like the first thing that pops into their mind of like how much we pay them, you know? And I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd say most of the jobs I get by the time they offer it to me, they have a line item in the budget of how much they want to pay me. And it's not usually super flexible. Yeah, that's true. Typically, they're like, hey, this is how much we have. And maybe they'll lowball you by like 500 bucks. And then you can be like, right. give me $500 more. And they're like, okay. But I've actually yeah, started. By the way, that's my other tip is like, if you really feel undervalued, you know, you can always ask for more money. And if they say no, you can still do the job. But there's also no harm in asking for more money. Like they've already made the difficult decision of choosing what director they want to hire. If you're asking just for $500 more, $1,000 more, just a slight bump in your rate, it's easier for them to do that than to like figure out what other director to hire. Yeah, pretty typically they've had to jump through so many hoops and it's not their money that they're paying you. So they'd much rather just, you know, find money elsewhere than have to go back to the client and say, well, he was out of our price range. Have you ever been told, this happened to me with Eben actually, who we had on like the third or fourth episode of this podcast, you know, we negotiated a rate and then after the job, he told me that I asked for way too little. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> no one's ever told me I've asked for too little. I have once or twice gotten a raise after the fact, which is even crazier, I think. I'll kind of do the thing where our, or my manager will be like, well, normally he costs this much money, so we're doing you a huge favor, which isn't super cool, but also is another way of kind of just raising your rate gradually. And then they were like, hey, we found extra money, so here's some. Right. And it's kind of just yeah, a way so of saying thank you. It, it's kind of especially when I do a really good job on something that maybe wasn't going to be quite as good you know right or if you just spend extra time on the edit or the music or the casting or you fix things or you write mm -hmm. something in post to make things work i can see how people you can come back and say hey i did all this extra work which by the way is like another totally valid thing to do you know as, as you know i also edit a lot yeah and i'm just editing i was editing this thing for funny or die this week and there was like some tv shots where they had a tv with the green screen on it and then they gave me the footage to put in it and I actually didn't say this to them, but I'm planning on saying it, which is like, hey, I can do the visual effects for this. I can put these screenshots in the, in the screen and I can make cool titles for this video, but you're going to have to pay me extra for that because you hired me as the editor, not as the visual effects artist. And I'm saving you like a lot of money, at least one day of visual effects by doing this. So, you know, if you just give me a tiny bump because I'm doing it for you, I'm saving you money. I think that's fair. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the job of directing, it's very different person to person. So some people are really 
into rewriting a script. Some people are really involved in the edit. Some people are really hands-on on sound or color or VFX. And some people, it's totally permissible to be like, hey, I'm available for prep and shoot and one session of notes and that's all you get from me. So I think that part of the issue is that it's hard for producers to know how big of a part of the team that the director is going to be basically like because sometimes like you know i've been every version of that director where i'm like in every single session like in the shit with people and sometimes i'm just frankly too busy and i'm upfront about that but like that's gonna fall on the producer or the editor or the vfx person or someone else if the director is not there to really help manage that part of the process And so I think it's easy for and safe for a line producer to underestimate what a director is ultimately going to be delivering in tangible work, you know? Right. When you do branded stuff or commercials, have you ever been responsible to make the pre-production book? I, I draw the line there. I won't do the book. So the book, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, is when you are directing a commercial or a branded video, anything where there's a client that's like outside of the company that you're working for, you usually have a call or a meeting with them right before the shoot where you show them everything that you're going to shoot. The location, the actors, the casting, the wardrobe, but also all the details, the schedule. Here, we're going to shoot on this camera, and this is the location, and this is the address from your hotel, and this is the when we're going to deliver the post stuff. I'm sure we've talked about this before, and I, I'll put a bunch of my own projects, my pre-production books on our website so you can check them out. But I've been on quite a few jobs where I'm responsible to make that book because I'm the only one that has like all those details and I can just kind of do it real quick without having to pass them through like a, one or two other people. Yeah, m- most of what goes in the book is the result of your decisions with the exception of a handful of things. So it does, I understand the logic of if you're the type of person who has great you know, layout or PowerPoint or InDesign skills to just go ahead and do it. I find that I am a in the weeds on things so much that I don't typically have time. You know, I'm on a scout or I'm in casting or something like that. B, I'm not great with them. Like just kind of detail wise, they'll end up being a typo or something that I'll miss. So I just know in my personality, for whatever reason, I even trying my hardest, I kind of mess those up a little bit. And they're really mostly for the client. So they really have to be buttoned up and and look great. And so I don't want to be the guy who's messed that up. And three, the other half of the book is the director and production team walking the client through the book. And I fucking crush that part. Like it's a thing that I'm pretty fucking good at so i don't feel so bad about not helping out on the book because i've done a lot of that work already and like frankly i can carry us through a bad book pretty easily especially if the producer is good with client as well it's kind of a whole different job frankly like i i love it when i work with a company where there's a couple different producers and basically one two or even three of them their main job is really just like taking those people to dinner making sure that they understand how production works and like rewriting the client's terrible jokes before they get to me so they're not bad. That's really, that's, boy, God bless those people. Yeah, that book, the book call is really an interesting part of like working in advertising. And like you said, it's like you kind of, 
the more you do it, the more you kind of develop the skill to figure out. It's like you're doing like a set for an audience, right? You're、yeah. like kind of trying to throw in some jokes. You're saying, you know, like we always shoot on the stage called affordable stages, and I always make some joke about, you know, here's our location. It's called affordable stages, you know, but. Don't worry, it was really expensive.、Uh, you know, whatever, <laughs>、yeah. and then we'll talk about it, and I'll show other things we shot there and why we love it. And I'll always like, I think I've talked about this before, but I'll always like pimp out like our cast and crew. I'll、right. be like, this guy was on this show or whatever. I even I had to do it for a project that I didn't know at all. A few weeks ago, I had to get on a call with a client, and the producer was like, "Orin, I know you didn't really work on this, but can you just take the client through the book because it's just like something that you do?" And I was like, "Ah." Feel really weird about doing this, but I'll do it. And I think the call went pretty well. You know, you just kind of read out loud what the details in the book, but with the sense of like knowing your audience and not giving them every detail that they don't care about. Right. Like if you have a schedule with like twenty things on it, you basically say, "Okay, here's our schedule for the day. You guys will show up at set around eight.、Mm-hmm. We'll start shooting around nine. We're gonna have lunch at one, and we're gonna be done by five.、Uh, yep. And this is like the order of how we're gonna shoot. Yeah. Any questions? No, okay. Next page. Yeah,、um, they, they're pretty bored as well, and most of them haven't spent a ton of time on set before. So, no matter how thoroughly you explain it to them, they're still not really going to get it until they're there, which is totally reasonable. Yeah, and it's all about just building confidence, and also you don't want to get to set and they see like the wardrobe you picked and hate it. So you're also showing them pictures of wardrobe and all、right. these things. You're getting like these soft approvals. And almost every single one of those calls, something changes. Like, oh, can we just have a dress on set? Also, I don't like the, you know, the jeans and the blazer. I also I, I like to use it as an opportunity to kind of lay groundwork about the way I like to run the set and how they can contribute in very controlled ways. So I kind of like make it clear, you know, this is the opportunity for you to pitch a joke or to. Give notes, or or even just to rest assured that you're going to be able to note something before I move on. Things like that. Well, cool. Well, that was a kind of a long catch up session, but I feel like there's some interesting things that came out of it. So let's move on to the show. Today, our guests are. You might know him from Squaresville and Just Shoot、uh, It, the podcast. He's one of the lesser-known hosts of the Just Shoot It podcast. Matt Enlow. <sighs> That's the crowd. Get it? Oh, cool. Yeah, sounds like breathing. So, I think something that I've been hearing a lot lately, ever since we've done this podcast, we've started kind of interacting with a lot of newer directors and people that are want to become directors and are moving to town. And something that comes up all the time is. How do I get an agent? How do I get a manager? And even with veteran directors, and I have a, a friend that just directed is directing her second feature. She already directed her first feature, and she's trying to find the right manager and the right agent. And was we were talking about you know how helpful they are, and it's weird because I feel like the, the agent and the manager, in my opinion, are not exactly what you expect them to be when you move to LA. I think. The idea, kind of, of what an agent is, is somebody that gets you jobs. That you are good enough to get an agent, whether it's through your work or through a connection or through something, and then they get a list of jobs every day, and they need to find a director, and then they will call you and say, "Hey, Matt, you know, we got a movie that needs a director. You should go pitch on it." And so I think that's kind of what we wish an agent was. Just someone that's like constantly bringing us jobs and opportunities, and same with the manager. But 
The reality of it is, at least from my experience, is that unless you're a Steven Spielberg, you're an A-list director, people aren't coming to you with jobs. You have to kind of, you know, peacock in a way. <laughs> you have to like keep doing things to stick out in the industry to be noticed. And then your agent is kind of your contact person. <laughs> if someone notices you and wants to hire you and will negotiate for you, But unless you're kind of really hitting a lot of home runs on your own, the agent can't do much for you. And the manager, in my opinion, and I want to get your opinion on what you think the difference between an agent and a manager is. But for me, the agent, you know, works on getting you jobs and making deals. And your manager is a little bit more involved in your career. So while the agent says, hey, you know, somebody saw your video and you got a call and they want to hire you for this thing, let's negotiate your rate. That's what the agent might do. The manager might say like, hey, no one's calling about you. Maybe you should, you know, make a short film or write a treatment or meet with some writers and develop some material so that we can go try to sell it to people in town. You know, if you are lucky enough to be in a position where there's multiple jobs, they might help you pick the right job and try to help steer you in a way. But in general, Having representation does not in any way correlate with like jobs coming to you without you having to do anything. Yeah, I think the thing that's really hard to wrap your head around is that even with like awesome, awesome representation, and we have a bunch of friends who have top tier agents, you always have to seal the deal yourself, right? Like the thing that representation has been good for me on, and I think it's been good for you as well, is like, setting up initial meetings, right? Like there have been some cool opportunities where, you know, maybe you could go in and do a, a fancy thing that you maybe you didn't have a contact with, you didn't you didn't know a company or whatever and they were looking for something from you. You still have to like go in and like crush it. And that's the thing that's a little hard to wrap your head around. It's because it's like you want the agent to be the silver bullet. Their roster is full of people that you've heard of, that your parents have heard of you've watched Entourage or like read books about agents or whatever, and you think that they're just going to kind of be handing you these jobs on a silver platter, but you still have to seal the deal all the time in a way that's very, very similar to when you didn't have an agent or manager. And so it's sometimes it's pretty hard to see the difference between the two times. Yeah. And I'd say almost everyone I know has been extremely frustrated with their very first agent and or manager. And it's because They feel like they need to do so much work to land some representation that once they get the representation, they can relax for a second. And it's actually the opposite is true. It's like once you get your manager or agent, you only have a couple months to figure out what to do with them and how to use them to convert your representation into actual work before they'll forget about you, frankly. Yeah. And, you know, that's just the nature of how these things work. They call it the honeymoon phase, right? Like once you first sign with someone, they're excited about you, you're top of mind for them. And so when they're talking to different people or they hear about, you know, a studio looking for someone to do a certain thing, they think of you, right? The tricky thing is, is that sometimes you're not exactly right for it, right? Or what you do is so unique that it's you're never really going to get request until you're a bigger deal so the result is that you just kind of always have to be feeding them material in order for that for you to stay top of mind for them right like it's just human nature that they're going to be chasing the money right all of those people their whole job is to get you more money 
and to get the company that they work for a bigger slice of the money that you make, basically. So if you're not in a position where you can really make them Hollywood-style money, the sort of money that they're used to making other places, it's pretty darn hard to get them excited about what it is you do. And sometimes, you know, like awards can compensate for that or, you know, some sort of prestige or cred, but... Yeah, I mean, even if you made a viral video, like you remember that Dove ad where it's like they take like a FBI profiler, he has women describe themselves and he draws what they look like. Right. And then you see like a side by side between what they look like and what they, how they describe themselves. And they're all much better looking than how they describe themselves. And it's just about like confidence and how we think so poorly of ourselves. And it was like this cute, beautifully shot, awesome concept, really well executed, like brings you to tears. And it's a commercial for Dove. To boot. So if you are the person that made that ad and it's going viral and there's a million articles about you this week, then your agent or manager can be like, oh, do you see that Dove ad? By the way, I rep that person. If you have things that are similar to that, let me know because she would be awesome for it. I happen to know it's a woman. But if it's not that week and you haven't done that viral video, then you should be working on making that viral video and, you know, keeping your agent or manager engaged. So I did this kind of controversial thing last week. I think I told you about it earlier today, which is my manager is relatively new. I basically got him when I started Miss 2059, the new form show right after I did that Burning Man video. And that Burning Man video, which got a lot of press, is actually how I got my management. I actually got my manager, Jacob Perlin. He reached out to me blindly because he knew of the video And he found out that I made it and he asked if I would meet with his clients who were the showrunners of the show. So I happened to have that week at that time and that's how I got my manager. And then for him to get land me the next job would probably require me to have another one of those weeks. But before I had him, I was working a lot on my own and I was getting all my own jobs through production companies I knew and and agencies I knew. And so I just had a call with him last week where I said, hey, Jacob, you know, I'm most of my work, like the living that I'm making right now is off of jobs that I'm getting for myself, from pre-existing relationships. But I want you to stay excited about me, even though I'm getting my own job. So what do you think if I pay you a commission on the jobs that I'm getting, even though you didn't get them for me and you're not negotiating them for me, I'll pay you anyway, instead of 10%, which is kind of the traditional how much you would pay a manager what if i give you five percent on the jobs i get for myself and obviously ten percent on the jobs that you get for me or you negotiate my rate or something and it was kind of like a big deal for me because you know i think most people like i said when they first think of representation they think why would i ever pay my agent or my manager for a job that they didn't get me but the attitude that i have and i've I've kind of developed over the, the last few years is if I have a manager or agent that I really like and I think they like me and we have a good relationship, I really want to preserve that relationship. And if I haven't done any work through them for six months and I don't want to lose them, maybe I can even kind of pay them for the work I am doing. Anyway, so I sent him an email. We got on the phone and then he said to me, you know, honestly, I totally appreciate that you're offering that but I want to get you like your next big job and then we can maybe even make this even more formal about how much of your directing income is shared with me. But I'm not, like you said, I'm not interested in you get a job for $5,000 and what do I get, 500 bucks? Like, I'd rather have you be comfortable with your jobs and that we focus on the big things. 
Yeah. And that is kind of more of a manager type of thing to say than an agent, right? Yeah, I, I would say so. And I think also no one wants to get, like no one who's representing you wants to get a phone call that's like, hey, I just need a job. Like it's been too long. Find me something. Yeah. Right. So there's a little bit of relief in them knowing that, you know, you can book your own work and that you're not, you're focused, you're 100% focused, but that you're not starving unless they're out there hustling for you. Right. And actually, that reminds me the last thing he said, which is mildly interesting, was even though, you know, I don't expect a commission, please tell me whenever you book a job so we know your schedule. But also so that we can, when we're talking to someone, you know, we're talking to Ubisoft about the next Assassin's Creed commercial, we can say, oh, he's shooting a Call of Duty thing this week. Right. Exactly. You know, you should talk to our client. Like, so, sorry, I'm just going <laughs> to tell one more story, rewinding back to, I think we should talk about how we got our managers and agents, because I'm assuming most of our audience, that's like the most interesting part of this conversation. But so I made a movie, The Hammer, in 2009, played at some film festivals, and Someone introduced me to these managers and anonymous content, and I met with them, and we got along really well, and they loved that I made this movie for very little money, and they said, okay, now we need to get you an agent. They sent my movie to every big agency in Hollywood. All but one of them was not interested, so they got me one meeting. I went, I met with this agent, and he said, okay, you made this movie. What's the next, you know, it's pretty good. What's what's the next thing? you want to do and I said I want to make like my own version of Fight Club like a real dark psychological action thriller and he said well you made like a sports family film like I don't know how these two things connect at all and he ended up passing on me and then after that happened I said to my managers like maybe we should go to like the second tier of agents like you were only trying to introduce me to like CAA, UTA, ICM, WME like maybe we should go down because clearly these people aren't interested in me and they said something really interesting to me. They said, look, there's like 200 movies a year made in Hollywood. And if you're making one of these movies, are you going to call a second or third tier agent to find a director? No, you only call the top tier agents at the top tier you know, agencies. So having an agent that's not super respected is not that helpful. Was their, their point of view, I, I, whether it's true or not, I don't know. So that kind of happened with them. And, you know, Anonymous Content is this great, you know, management company and they're a production company and they represent David Fincher and Guy Ritchie and Michelle Gondry and all like my favorite directors. And so I kept obviously in touch with my managers and I was like telling them about these ideas I had. I was telling them about my shoots that they should come visit me on set. And the whole relationship just kind of like faded away. And I was really frustrated. And I spoke to my lawyer, who's also like a friend of mine. The way I got my lawyer, by the way, is... He was like a f my friend's lawyer and I actually cast my lawyer to act in some of my sketches. And then he's like, do you have a lawyer? And I was like, no. And so he became like my lawyer. He's an entertainment lawyer. So I kind of lucked into that relationship. But anyway, so I asked my lawyer about my managers and I said like, dude, what's up with my managers? They're like not doing anything for me. And he was like, come to my office. Let's talk about this. So I go to his office um, and he's a, he's a, a, a good entertainment law, like law firm. I mean, they rep like huge writers and actors and directors. It, it's also worth saying, having an entertainment lawyer, they're kind of the third member of your team. So yes. it's not like you sign with a lawyer, but they kind of do take you on in a similar sort of sense. Yeah, they get 5% of your money. Yeah, they get 5%, um, but, but also that they introduce you to people, they can help you find money for financing. 
it's it's right. not just like well, so oh, he like introduced I'm me have the, him look over contracts. They're negotiating on your behalf, so it is part of your team. It also like there is is a kind of prestige to that as well. Right. And my lawyer is actually the person that introduced me to the managers at Anonymous Content that ended up working with me the first time around. Anyway, so I went to him, I sit down in his office and he's, you know, I kind of detail the things. I'm like, I called my managers, the managers, I sent them like three different ideas for scripts that I had to see if they wanted to discuss them. I invited them to set. They said they tried to stop by. They never came by. I just don't know what to do with them. They just like kind of seem to be ignoring me. And my lawyer said, like, you are thinking of managers in a totally wrong way. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to think of your manager as a salesperson. You give them the material, and it can't, just, it can't just be an idea. You can't just, like, email them a logline and think that that's material. You make stuff. You make a short. You make a feature. You make a treatment. You write a script. Right, totally. You send that to your manager, and your manager, if they like it and they think it's sellable, We'll show it to people. Mm-hmm. And that's like the primary part of that relationship. And he was like, totally right. I was like, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Like, they're not going to go and work for hours and hours and hours on trying to make your career better when they have other clients that are giving them material that they can actually show people that are making a short film that you know, the manager can send to some production companies and say, hey, check out uh, one of my clients made this awesome short film, you know? And by the way, you'll make stuff and send it to your manager and you know like 80 percent of the time they will not like it that much to send it out and then you just have to make more stuff or show it to more people so after he explained that to me about management it kind of opened up my eyes and reminded me that it your reps are only as good as the material you're giving them to represent you with yeah. you know whether it's your website or your reel or your work or whatever and so i ended up you know leaving them at Anonymous, and now my new manager, Jacob, is at Anonymous again. But now I'm back there, and I I have a whole different mentality about it. You know, I he said, you, you should update your website. I updated my website. You know, write a treatment. I'm writing treatments. Every time I make a commercial, a short film, anything, I send it to him. And I'm like, hey, just so you know, here's something I did today. And I don't expect anything from him. But when he sees opportunities, he tells people about me. And so that leads to things, it leads to meetings, it leads to opportunities, it leads to just my name getting out in town. So it took me about 10 years in, in Hollywood to figure out how to properly use my manager. And I personally don't have an agent because unless I was working in TV a lot or in, I think, a part of the industry where there is just a lot of jobs and a small pool of directors that are appropriate for it, it's hard for me to rationalize having an agent and trying to keep them entertained and them motivated and paying them on top of everything else. So anyway, that's my story of managers and agents. So I I think the big lesson, and it's a thing that it took me a long time to learn. And it's maybe one of the most important things about Hollywood or just life in general is that you just have to make it easy for every single person that you're working with. Right, like think through what mm-hmm. their job is, think through what they're trying to do and what their goals are and make it as simple as possible for them to achieve those goals on your behalf. Right. So in the instance of an agent or a manager, like they need the the sort of ammunition that you're talking about. They need to be able to say, Hey, Orin just did this awesome video, check it out. Right. But if they're supposed to you know, keep an eye on you and follow you on Twitter or like be on Facebook to see that you posted this video, that's not going to work, 
Like you explicitly say, hey guys, this is a cool thing that I made. Take a look at it. And that's it, right? No questions asked. That that You just hope that they watch it and that, you know, an opportunity comes up for them to bring it up in some way, right? But that's true for everything and everyone, right? Like producers, executives, everyone just needs the materials to pass things along. So that's why I love one pagers and two pagers so much. That's why uh, I never send out a document to a producer, even if it's a shot list or something, until it's like it looks really good and that it can circulate around. People need those materials from directors because that's that's a big part of the job. And so you just have to make sure that they look really good and that it makes their jobs easier and like think through what it is they actually have to do in order to achieve those goals. So like right. like agents, for instance, every week they have a big meeting where they're all around that big table you've seen on TV and their assistants are behind them on the wall and they all have to talk about what's important for the company that week. And so your agent could either be like, I got nothing, or they could be like, oh, you know what? Oren just directed this really cool Quiznos Burning Man spot. And I, you know, does anyone else know of a VFX comedic project that needs a director? Because Oren's doing great. Like, or, yeah, or that would be awesome if I had an agent saying that. About <laughs> there you go. Well, <laughs> do you have an agent, Matt? I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, I actually just recently signed with them. Oh, right, right. I think you told me. Yeah, and I think the the story of how I got my agent and manager and lawyer it's kind of a linear succession. Basically, I made Squaresville season one met the owner of a production company that wanted to was was like interested in financing season two that production company turned into a management company as well that management company then introduced me to my current manager he was like oh i think you're really great i see a lot of potential in what you're doing because I'd already made two seasons of a show, mind you, and figured out a way to get those financed and to find and build an audience, right? Then started working professionally, and we realized that, oh, I have kind of like a similar sort of mindset to the way that he likes to do business. And then he was pitching a project of mine to an agency just to do packaging, basically. And that agency was like, oh, why don't we rep Matt? We love this. And that's basically the path. Like, it's so often that your manager gets you your agent or vice versa. And also, I'll, you know, I'll be honest. There were instances where, like, I thought I was ready for an agency and, you know, approached someone or sent them my stuff for years, for years and years. I, you know, I would thought that maybe I was ready. And um, every time I pursued an agent, they were like, no, nah, you're not ready yet. Yeah. Dude, I freaking directed something for William Morris, WME. They do these like quarterly videos and I did it for an agent. I did it for free and it killed at the meeting and it even did well online. It was on Deadline and Daily Variety and everything. And I was like, hey, dude, so I just directed this thing. Can you help me out? And he's like, well, how would I help you out? I said, introduce me to some directing agents. And he was like, nah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. I was like, okay. And also my friend's brother-in-law worked at CAA. He like kept introducing me to directing agents. And they're like, cool, you're a nice guy. Uh, come back to us when you have more material. So I think and we should probably conclude this section on agents and managers. By the way, please, please, please feel free to email us questions and thoughts. But I just want to, for our final, like putting the nails in the coffin on this topic, 
What do you think, Matt? How important is it to get an agent and manager when you move to LA as a director? Not important. Not important at all. Exactly. Yeah. One thing Matt and I agree on. <laughs> I think, I think just to clarify, and I think we even talked about this in a previous episode, but if you've got someone who's interested in repping you, unless you've got real heat, like mega viral status, or your last name is DiCaprio, or, you know, like sincere Hollywood heat, and it's an agency that's either called CAA, UTA, WME, Gersh, or ICM, they're probably not big enough for it to really mean something for you. So it could even give you false hope or that some jokester will be taking money from you when it doesn't make sense. Acting, I think, is a different a different order, but like... Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, for the record, this has absolutely nothing to do with actors who should get agents and managers yeah, yeah. And, and, as, and, and as soon as they can. I think the ecosystem is much more robust, but for writers, directors, shooters, editors, you know, the profile is much smaller. Right. And also, if you're in doubt and you're like, mm, I don't know if this agency or management company is right for me, all of that information, their entire roster is available on IMDb Pro. We've talked about like how it's worthwhile to sign up for that. It's like, I don't know, like 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, something like that. I bet you can get a free trial if you're thinking about moving out to LA. Sign up, take a look at the roster. If you've heard of people and if they're like people who you admire or are on the same level as you and it makes sense, just trust your in- intuition on that. But like any sort of wishful thinking in this situation is probably a little uh, misguided, I would guess. Don't seek representation because it will find you when you're ready to have it. It's all okay. Like you can make a living directing without that representation and be totally fine for a long, long time. A relationship with a production company like a College Humor or a window seat or a sawhorse will probably lead to many more directing jobs than a relationship with an agent or a manager. Yeah, especially when you're first starting out. Yep. Cool. Well, let's move on to our next topic, Matt, which is the difference between writers and writer-directors. I'd say I consider myself to be a little bit more of a director, and you're probably a little bit more of a writer-director. I think everyone would love to be a writer-director. I just personally don't, I'm not so disciplined to do the writing part. I'm very involved in every script I ever direct. I usually do at least a small pass, rewriting things, punching things up, Definitely giving notes, things that I think work and don't work. But in terms of like sitting at the blank page and writing everything myself, I very, very rarely do that unless I'm working with a writing partner. How important do you think it is to be able to write as a director? Well, I I will say, and I should clarify, a lot of my work, I'm not the writer on at all. Like all of my college humor work, someone else wrote that. And it's a situation like you're describing where I'll go ahead and punch something up, pitch jokes, all of that stuff. But especially their sketches, you know, that company is so writer-driven that by the time I'm getting it, it's in great shape already. So it's pretty rare that I have to do a ton, much work on that. My own stuff, Squaresville, or the shows that I'm, you know, pitching and directing on now, I wrote myself. So, you know, I definitely classify myself as a writer-director. And look, man, it's uh, it's painful and hard. Like, writing is really gut-wrenching stuff in a way that directing is is not you know like directing is very hard and but there's also that fun and that glamour and that adrenaline rush and the the fun of just kind of being on set that 
writing doesn't often offer. But the right. the but writing is free. Writing is free, and also if I didn't write, I wouldn't have a career. You know, like right. Squaresville is a direct result of me wanting to be a director, and so I wrote the thing that I could direct. Basically, I heard this director at a film festival on a panel say once that directing is the reward for writing because you put yourself through the writing process. You're awarded with the fun of directing. Of course, I just want to have the fun of directing. But talking about this makes me think about, you know, everything we just talked about, agents and managers, which is like, you're only, they're only as good as your material is. And how are you supposed to make material if you don't have any reps and no one's hiring you? And so, you know, we always talk about this. You always say like, oh, you know, Oren, you get like all this visual effects and editing work in between your directing jobs. That's so helpful. But to me, it's like, because I don't write that much on my own, it's the visual effects and editing stuff that helps me generate ideas. So I'll, you know, install a new plugin for Adobe After Effects or like come up with a cool like editing idea. And then I will try to incorporate, like just make a little video out of that and use that to pitch things. And you know, who's really good at that is Tim Nakashi. Mm -hmm. He just has like a list of like really cool ideas he has and he will just like make them and, and pitch them to people. And so to me, it's like, if you don't write, you need something else that helps you generate material to show people. So for me, it's more like visual stuff, more visual effects, or just kind of log lines or ideas for stories or characters. And when it comes to fill up that blank page, I will, you know, nine times out of 10, try to team up with someone to help me get there. And it's really just, I just really have a hard time like sitting down and typing stuff with nothing to go off of. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um it's one of those things where I don't think you need to beat yourself up over it. I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can generate content, right? And you do, right? So I think I always admire that you're really great at finding ways to put your own voice into those work for hire jobs, right? And figuring out ways to add a specific aesthetic or style or production value to things that could otherwise be lackluster you know like mm-hmm. which is which is sure that's that's directing that's that's part of the job but i think also like adding that special aspect of your voice and then sending it to the people who need to see it is another way of generating that material and another way of kind of controlling and inspiring the work that you want to be doing next right really cuz that's the big advantage to writing and directing in my mind is that like you know, I, I always joke, if I get a script that's in great shape, I always joke, oh, this is a vacation. Half my job is done for me already. That's how wonderful is this, right? But the reason that I continue to write is so that I can continue to move in the direction that of my ultimate goals. You know, so I think it's important that you find the way to do that. It's not necessarily important that it's writing versus pitch decks versus you know, inspiring a writing partner or commissioning a script or figure, you know, there's a lot of ways to figure out how to self-generate and writing just feels like maybe the most obvious and cheap one. Right. Do you know what a script mint is? Yeah. It's like in between a treatment and a script. And have you ever directed anything off of a script mint? You know, I've directed things off of beat sheets, right? So soft scripted sort of stuff. That's more reality style, but no... You know, I'm kind of a old school dilettante about putting things on the page, kind of just because it still gives me a sense of like 
pacing and page count, you know? Right. I think of scriptments as something that I can make without having the pressure of like writing great dialogue, you mm-hmm. know? It's like, I know what needs to happen in every scene. It's basically a list of scenes and what happens in them. And, you know, maybe a few lines of dialogue here and there. But it's really more about the story than about a really very readable document. And there are a few directors, uh, one in particular that I know is this guy, Drake DeRamis, that made that movie like crazy. He made a bunch of other movies that did pretty well. And they were all based off scriptments. And I think, did you see that movie, The One I Love, with Mark Mm -hmm. Duplass? Yeah. Peggy from Mad Men. Really great movie. You should check it out on Netflix. Uh, I think that one was also just all written in an outline form and the actors just improvised it. So I'm trying to, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, a scriptment doesn't have to be great. And with writing, it's like all about giving yourself permission to not be great, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think when I try to write, I try to do more like the beat sheets and more of those things so that I'm not stressed out about how generic my dialogue sounds or how every character talks exactly the way that I talk. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's still a ton of value in the vomit draft, right? Which is just that first pass of a document, whether it's scriptment or an outline or a two pager or a full script. That's just like, here's the visceral gut level version of what I want to make. Right. And it's got, it's going to have a lot of the nuggets that you're really looking for and once it's in black and white and you can see like, oh boy, that that dialogue is generic, that's step one, right? And then you mm-hmm. can go ahead and punch it up somehow. But like if it's not on the page, it's a heck of a lot harder to punch it up in the first place. Yeah. But well, I, I'll continue with my attempt to write more. Well, you, you know, it's it's funny because I think if you compare us, you know, we always joke about how we're always up for the same jobs and our resumes are too similar, right? But I think that you tend to get excited about the textural aspects of a film, right? Like you're excited about the cool way in which you're going to cover it, what the awesome location is, kind of putting together that whole, what the image is ultimately going to look like and the tone and the feel of the piece, right? And certainly that's something that I like as well, but I tend to, I think, maybe approach it a little bit more from an actor's perspective or a story perspective, right? And I think that in a way, we kind of represent the two different aspects of directing, right? You kind of have like basically the camera side and the script side, and the director kind of comes somewhere in between. But there are only a handful of directors that are truly great at both aspects, right? And so if you look at either of our idols, I think they very clearly are either much, much better at the thing that we aren't as good at or are really great at the thing we like the best. But like... Well, what do you think of like a Darren Aronofsky or a David Fincher? I think both of those dudes are clearly visualists first and are good at story, great at story, but... Even though Aronofsky like writes all his own movies. Yeah, yeah. Dude, did you see Black Swan? That movie sucks. (laughs) <laughs> what yeah, yeah no that's inflammatory i know but yeah i i definitely don't think that it's story first i oh, think that movie that, that movie, movie is so good so good uh, all about movie tone. that i don't like is found the fountain oh i love you the fountain. that one i love the fountain yeah i, like I love the fountain. sleep i love so the fountain. fountain but okay, yeah okay well 
clearly we can never have any more conversations. We just don't get each other. <laughs> Someday I'll have to show you my impression of Natalie Portman in Black Swan. Okay. Well, what's it? Who's a director that's more story oriented, like a Judd Apatow? Yeah, I mean he's he's just joke oriented, which you know I like as well. But certainly I I identify with a Paul Feig or a Judd Apatow in that like those guys construct their shots so that you can swap jokes out. What about Ang Lee? Boy, Ang Lee's the best. Ang Lee's it. Yeah, he's got both. Yeah, I would say so. I, I think he's a full-on genius. And look, Spielberg, Spielberg, Kubrick, you know, like your favorites, those guys can do all of it. But um, I'm not saying, like the job of the director is to be able to do both. But I think that you kind of tend to start in one side and move towards the other. You know what I mean? Yeah, to me, it's like, as cliche as it sounds, it's like all the same thing. Like the tone, the sound design, is telling as much of the story as the script, you know? If you do it right. If you do it right, you can have this great movie with barely any dialogue that nothing happens in. A- absolutely. But would Tootsie be as good a movie if there was no dialogue? No. No. Would The Graduate? No. Like, I think if you look at, like, especially... The Graduate <laughs> could, be, could come close. Sure, Tootsie is be. like, it's a comedy. You know, it's a straight comedy. It's like all about the funny situations that people are in and the stuff they say to get out of them. Yeah. Yeah. And a masterpiece, you know, and totally textural and like tons of sight gags, you know, atmospheric again, you know, that movie's on the top 100 AFI list, but comes from a more theatrical, like script based character based background, I would say. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just both strive to be great at both things. Yeah. Hmm. I've had this conversation. I feel like I need to go back and rewrite this thing I wrote today (laughs) and just like kind of approach it. I kind of, while I was writing it, I kind of felt like the characters were a little generic and I was just trying to make up for it with the jokes because it just seemed way harder for me to go and figure out what all the characters are and what their characteristics are. And I was trying to keep the script really short because it's branded content and people get really upset when you like write too many details into the script. But ultimately if you know, the script I wrote had like six characters in it. If each one of them was well-defined, it probably would have added up to something better than what it is right now. Yeah, I mean, the the trick there is just in keeping your language economical, right? So how can you evoke the specificity of each different character with just like a couple words? Yeah, shoot. Now that we talk about it, I know how to do it. There's this montage between all the different characters in their apartments. And if I just add like a few adjectives to each person's apartment i can probably set up the characters yeah damn cool see the more you write the better you get at it that's the truth man that's the sad sad truth well cool well we should probably wrap things up so let's move on to our final section little thing i like to call unpaid endorsements Oren, you got one for this week? Well, oddly enough, I didn't have one when we started the podcast, but I wanted to talk about something during the manager and agent portion that I didn't quite get to. So I decided to just move it over to the unpaid endorsement section. How wonderful. There's this casting director named Sharon Bialy who cast a bunch of really cool things like Breaking Bad and Walking Dead. And she wrote this book. Oh, Sharon Bialy of Bialy Thomas. That's yes. The, yeah, yeah. Sharon and Sherry. Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas. I think they also uh, cast... Battlestar Galactica, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. They cast, like, I see their names pop up all the time. Yeah. And Sharon Bialy's been to my house. 
Oh, really? One of my claims to fame. Whoa, that's super dope, man. Yeah. She kind of like helped us out on like my first feature a little bit. So cool. Uh, But anyway, she wrote this book called How to Audition on Camera, A Hollywood Insider's Guide for Actors, which if you're an actor, I would recommend reading. It is very short. I read it in one night. And it's like very, it's what our podcast is for directing. It is like about acting. It's super craft based. It's like very technical and specific. And hey, she says, I'm a casting director and this is what I like and this is what I don't like. Obviously, all casting directors are different, but I'm just writing a book about my view. And one of the things she says in the book is, you know, actors do this thing, which is they send postcards with their headshot on them to casting directors. They get a list of 100 casting directors in Hollywood and their addresses. They make postcards with pictures of themselves on it. And then they will have a little blurb like, hey, I'm Kara and I'm going to be in Big Bang Theory this weekend or next week. And I was just in this movie and blah, blah, blah. And here's a picture of me. Please consider me. Now, Sharon Bialy says she gets like dozens of postcards a day because that's just a thing. And she says that she always looks through all of them. She probably won't watch the trailer of your film, but she'll look at the pictures and maybe just kind of get a feeling of who you are. And then she will throw them away. But she says on occasion, like one out of a hundred times, she'll see someone that might be right for something she's casting right now. And she'll put their postcard on the desk of her assistant and she'll say, hey, call this person in for the audition. Wow. And that's like the example of, you know, like when we were talking about making material and putting yourself out there, you know, that with an agent or manager, sure, you're going to send them a ton of stuff that won't lead to anything. But every once in a while, you'll send them that short film about dyslexia and, you know, they'll be talking to someone who's like doing a project about dyslexia. And so, you know, I think her book is kind of encouraging. So you should check it out. How to Audition on Camera, a Hollywood Insider's Guide for Actors. It's only $10 on Kindle if you want to read it on your iPad, but it's good. It's, you know, if you know actors, I'd highly recommend it to them. But as a director, it's kind of nice to see a veteran casting director's impression on what she likes and dislikes in an actor. Yeah, I especially like that because, um, you know, as far as casting directors go, Bialy Thomas is like top tier, certainly. So it's neat to have a insider's guide written by an honest to goodness Hollywood insider and authority. You know, there are only so many of those books out there and it, I feel like most of them are written by screenwriters or directors. So it's really cool to have one by a casting director. I'm going to buy it for sure. Cool. Yeah. The recent stuff she cast is Halt and Catch Fire, Gotham, Vice Principles, The Walking Dead, Flaked, Better Call Saul, Battle Creek, Under the Dome, Breaking Bad, Vegas. I mean, it just keeps going. Yeah. Like everything you've heard of. Yeah. Such great taste. Awesome, man. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, my endorsement is a little old movie that most of you didn't see in theaters and is now out on VOD and Blu-ray and all that good stuff. It's Popstar. Oren, did you see Popstar? Oh, the, the Lonely um, Island Andy movie? Sandberg yeah. movie? Yeah, Lonely Island, technically. It's a Yorma and um, Akiva. I did not see it, but I know about it. Should I watch it? I Look, man, I loved it. Yeah. yeah did I, you lol? Yeah. Yeah, big time. I think um, it's really funny. It's really well produced. There aren't a ton of, um, you know, studio comedies kind of in this bracket, right? Like, it's not crazy expensive, but it's still like a real honest-to-goodness movie that's you know, got a ton of cameos and, you know, some huge crowd scenes and things like that. 
Yeah, and it was totally funny. And and Seal is in it. Right? Seal is in it. Everybody's in it, man. I loved MacGruber, and so and I liked Hot Rod. Okay, so mm-hmm. as kind of the third Lonely Island movie, I really really enjoyed it. Okay, I'll check it out. Check it out, man. You can borrow it from me on Blu-ray. Oh, on Blu-ray. I mean, I got to plug my Blu-ray player in because I get it. I gotta get that director's commentary, bro. I'm gonna endorse one more thing real quick, just because. It's timely, but check out the pilot for This Is Us. I, I was like so annoyed by it because there were so many promos for it. It's this NB, new NBC drama, and it just seemed like kind of soapy and annoying, and there was like all these fat jokes, which I never really like. I don't know. I always feel weird about them, but watch that pilot, and it's like a classic, classic example of a pilot that you could write that will is guaranteed to sell <laughs> because it's got this formula that works so even if you don't watch the show i think it's a pilot worth watching all the way through because the way it's structured is clever and emotional at the same time and i think that's like network tv pilot writing 101 it's worth checking out oh i'll check it out while you're checking that out listeners at home i would love to know what else you guys are watching i feel like i'm always looking for great tv or even actually you know what i'm looking for is good tv there's plenty of great tv out there that we all know about but i'm curious about the things that uh people aren't quite buzzing about so much so send us a line drop us a tweet at just shoot it pod or you can tweet me directly at mr matt Enlow. or you can see my tweets at smitey pileg and please email us too we are just shoot it pod at gmail.com we'd love to hear your feedback your questions your complaints you know, if you guys want to vote Matt off the podcast, totally understand. I get it, guys. I get it. And rate us on iTunes, will you? Yeah, that's another big one. Thanks, guys. This episode was edited by Eric Cropo. Thanks, Eric. Music was provided by Jazar and the Free Music Archive. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. Bye. Um, I was listening to myself last time. It's like, I'm very ummy. Don't say so many ums, bro. Okay. I'll say you know. You know, uh, like um, a, I do that a lot. I think I do more ums when it's just you and me because it's like we have to keep the conversation going more like intensely. I found myself agreeing too much. Like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then oh, really, I'll do, uh, I'll do. Um, the the worst is when you'll stress a word for too long, so he can't cut around it. Oh right, you know, yeah, you're yeah. like, you know, it's funny because Mm -hmm. that's the worst well yeah um okay cool yep ready Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.